Welcome to Talent Matters, the podcast where talent, skills, and determination take center stage. I'm your host, Donal O'Donoghue. At each episode, we dive into the world of applying talent in various aspects of life. Whether it's careers, sport, or creative, Talent Matters explores how the right mix of talent, skills, and grit can propel us towards our goals. Join us as we uncover stories, insights, and strategies from our guests who have tapped into their talents to create remarkable achievements. This podcast is brought to you by Sanderson, a leader in global talent solutions. Damien Brown is an extreme adventurer and international keynote speaker. He's a former professional rugby player who played for Connacht, Northampton Saints, Breve, and Leinster. He's undertaken some incredible challenges, including rowing solo and unsupported across the Atlantic Ocean, climbing five of the seven summits, and running a 257-kilometer ultramarathon across the Sahara Desert. Let's get into it. Good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, so I was telling you there before we got started that the whole idea for this podcast is all about examining the relationship the relationship between talent and skills and grit and as soon as that idea came up the first name on the uh, on the wish list when it comes to talent skills and grit was Damien Brown uh, I suppose just for people that mightn't have come across you before I can safely say you're the only person I know that's ran across the Sahara and rode across the Atlantic and stuff so uh, before we get into some of the outlandish stuff that you've done with your life and um, can we go back to the early days? Because, you know, talent emerges uh, in childhood. So what were you good at? What were you into when you were, if you go back to primary school age mm. or when you were a small kid, what, what were your talents? What did you gravitate towards? Sport generally and two particular sports, um, rugby um, as a kind of 11, 12 year old, uh, a kind of consequence of um, environment. So a lot of the kids in my neighborhood were walking up the 10 minute walk up to go Egan's RFC from from our um, our little community so you know seeing the older kids that you look up to like the at that point 14 year olds 15 year olds you know and, and them throwing the gear bag over the shoulder and, and all walking up together on a Saturday morning at like 10 o'clock so that was something that um, I wanted to emulate I suppose uh, and that first day in um, go Egan's I remember vividly, like I remember that first training session and um, I could take you to the spot where I knew this sport was for me. It was on the rugby pitch. I could bring you there right now. Um, that's how I remember it uh, so kind of clearly. And I, I, I committed fully to a tackle. So there was a guy running, a young, you know, obviously 11, 12 year olds, it was under 12s running past me with the ball and I remember this kind of literal leap of faith right leaving the ground and committing fully to a tackle and kind of wrapping my arms and then him continuing to run and sliding down his body and as I slid down his body his trailing boot came up and you know bashed into my, the underside of my jaw and just did this reverberation through my nervous system and that was the moment like it was just this communication to me you know you've you've found your sport um that's mad i had the opposite experience because the first <laughs> tackle at under 12s i went to make i just got ran over <laughs> So, um, yeah, no, rugby was kind of from that moment, uh, it was my sport, but it was actually played second fiddle to most of my 
kind of teenage years to actual golf, would you believe? Oh. Yeah, I, my dad was a big golfer and um, it was it was how we spent a lot of time together. You know, he was a member of a uh, golf club outside Galway called Uchtdraird. Um, and um, he, I suppose, uh, uh, during, you know, childhood, um, I was uh, pushed to him and you take him golfing. If you're going golfing, we'll take the young fella because I was the mm-hmm. oldest, right? Um, so I just, I got really into golf and and, and loved it. And my, he actually ended up, opening a driving range in Galway at one point so every summer I was working in the driving range you know and just hitting balls and um uh and and kind of uh, building that obsession with the game but it came to this period then you know later in my teens like 15 16 where rugby started to surpass it in how I looked at it and uh, how I enjoyed it and and kind of golf became um I suppose second fiddle to rugby and, and all my energy went into training and and um and uh, playing games really mm. but then I remember when we talked in the past you talked about a time where you kind of got out of shape when you were in secondary school mm, yeah that was kind of pushing into so you know I, I was always um, big, you know, I had a, you know, I, I think How tall I, are you, by the way? I'm 6'5". You make the rest of us feel very <laughs> short. You're 6'5". Six 6'5", five. Six five, but okay. I've been 6'5 since I was kind of 16. Had a big growth spurt, I think, between like junior cert, so, and, and, and then into fifth year. I came back and, and I was always tall, but I'd like gone like head and shoulders above everyone else. Like there's pictures of me and the rugby team and you know the way the heads are all kind of the same and then it kind of goes like this and then back along. So I was always, I had that big growth spurt. So I was always big, but then, you know, my lifestyle was really poor. Like I just had a really bad diet and there was some issues at home and I suppose I was emotionally avoiding them and just trying to cope. Like, so that was my outlet, right? And, you know, if I'm being honest still to this day, like if I ever find myself kind of, um, you know, emotionally down, like I see myself um, overeating, like Mm. it all comes from that period. I've been there. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably relate to that. So, yeah. um, So I got to a point when I was like 17 where I was, um, I was, heavily overweight and very unfit and I, I still had this love for the game and obsession but I just wasn't um I wasn't I wasn't fit to play like so I wasn't getting selected and uh, I came off a of school's rugby season um in the bish um like kind of March time and I hadn't been selected for a game um and when it meant so much here like it really it hurt me you know when I when the penny dropped that you are, you know, you love this game, you're obsessed with it, but you're you're not getting picked, you're not, you know, you're disappointing yourself, you're underperforming, you're not living up to any potential. It's hard to believe that you can be in secondary school, six foot five, and not get, not get Yeah, picked, so. no, it was a waste of space, really, you know, so at least in terms of um, a performing and contributing to a team. Mm. So I didn't deserve to be picked, and it was the right thing to do uh, for the coaches, um, but I didn't, I didn't see that until that moment. It was the the pain of the picture that I then saw, you know, that um, that made me make a decision that like literally changed the course of my life. So, uh, and that decision was on on the on a very shallow level, or sorry, at least a shallow level of view was to get fit. Um, but really, what the decision was was to take responsibility for one thing within my life, um, one thing that was in my within my control. Um, and the question I asked myself was like, "Well, what are you gonna do about it?" 
you know like it just I think I was just sick of like waiting, you know, sick of waiting for somebody else to do something for me. Um, and I was able to yeah make that decision to um, start to get fish. And, and of course, more than just you know, we, you know, the decision, then I put in the actions um, of just, you know, walking up to to Goegians again and just running laps because that's all I knew. And like the first night was, you know, I, I lasted two and a half laps. But I came back the next night and the next night and the next night and, you know, started to build a bit of momentum, um, started to see myself running a bit further, started to um, feel different about myself. Um, and those things are very um, what responsibility gives you is control and control um, is a very addictive thing, you know. So um, so I was the momentum and the rewards of the um the decision and then the work and then what that gave me the control was you know easily i suppose um uh um latched onto and continued um even though every day of course was difficult every step of those laps was difficult because of my size and my lack of capacities but i was able to kind of leverage that momentum that was starting to feel better about myself started to feel right um and started to get fit and started to my rugby started to improve dramatically so you know i put in 30 nights straight on that pitch and you know i continued training during that summer that was like kind of april time at the end of the season and when i got back into school the next year you know all of a sudden i was um i was a hugely valuable person in the team because i was six foot five and like 19 stone playing schoolboys rugby and i was just i moved back to number eight i was picking the ball off the back of the scrum and i was just scoring tries like i was i was basically like just i wasn't unstoppable but like they found it hard to stop me because i was aggressive as well i had an aggression within me um so um yeah people start looking up to you then and that feels good mm. i think that feels very good for the the male you know when you are um you are um in a position where people are reliant on you and um and and you are playing a role in in i suppose leading the team in that case so all of those things just led to this thing, this connection between the action of doing something, so taking responsibility and committing to getting fit and then doing the work and persevering through the work and then the rewards of that. Um, and the next year I came out of school and I was into professional, straight into professional um, rugby. So it's not like it is now where... Um, you know the the depth in professional uh, squads is huge, and you're 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 never going to be you're never going to come from schools at least as a second row into playing senior professional rugby. But back then the the game was uh, professional three years, mm -hmm. so there might have only been three or four senior second rows, and they, I suppose they just saw this big lump of a young fella. And they were like, well, just throw him in and see if he sinks or swim, you know. Um, and thankfully, I was able to swim uh, in those. You know, I took the opportunity and I had the the raw materials to um, to contribute at that early stage. Um, and uh, and that led to this, you know, 16 year career in professional rugby. Mm. And, you know, a lot of a lot of what you've talked about in the past and what we've discussed in the past is that kind of connection between physical endeavor and what that does for your, I suppose, psychologically, mm. what that does for your mindset. So if you were to take that 16 year rugby career 
and kind of distill it down to what rugby gave you or equipped you with what what do you when you think back on it it's an extraordinarily um challenging environment so the 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 pressures are um from every angle so you have the internal pressures that you put on yourself to perform and um, be better and get better you have the external pressures of everyone you're continually and constantly judged and prodded and poked you know from the strength and conditioning staff they're all pressurizing you um, to get uh, leaner better body composition stronger better conditioning um, faster so there's all sorts of metrics that you are continually working towards even in the strength and conditioning then you have the coaching and the technical side of it and you have your individual um, or your positional coaches who are trying to make you a better scrummager a better line out forward a better um, uh, better at the rock better in the mall better uh, around the field better ball carrier better tackler so you're constantly being um, analyzed every not every not even every week but every day there um, and then you have the pressures of um, performing week in, week out and um, the pressures from fans, even though that wasn't a really big one for me, but it, it exists, right? Pressure from media, you have, uh, it's a career, financial pressures, you're trying to make the most out of it. So it helps you, what, what it did more than anything is it gives you the tools to deal with pressure mm. and understand the, um, the, the psychology around um, dealing with those pressures and the way it's more well, I mean often the way we learn best is through failing to deal with things you know so it's I had plenty of failures along that way of dealing with those pressures but if you kind of if you stay alive enough in the fight you'll and you keep picking yourself up when you're knocked down you'll figure out a way to to deal with those pressures of course you have to analyze where you go wrong along the way the mistakes you make but you know you you'll figure that out long enough if you if you stay alive in the fight mm. and you you played professional rugby in ireland and england and france where were you happiest in terms of when you think about the setup the team <coughs> the culture what what did you enjoy the most in terms of an environment to be in the environment of Leinster um, when I arrived at Leinster so I have been probably a pro at that point for, for, for 13, 11 years and um, I, 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 it was like a, a, a relief that I finally found an environment where I felt that my mentality and my work ethic um, it matched what was there already and in some cases was a maybe a step or two below um, the standards, what were demanded of the players there. So they just had this extraordinary, um, um, empowering culture, you know, where they pushed a lot of the um, pressure back onto the player to perform and demanded um, a lot in terms of the um, strength and conditioning size side of it. So I, I always had a, a massive um, affection and obsession with um, my... Uh, physical state and improving that ever since that 17 year old started r uh, running laps I understood the power 
that was within improving your physical and, and therefore mental capacity. So I took a huge responsibility for that in the other clubs I was in, meaning that like I would just go to the gym and train on my own because I didn't feel like I was getting enough out of what they were demanding. But when I got to Leinster, I was like, everybody here is on that same level. Like everybody here is pushing the environment, the coaches, the um, rehabilitation specialists are all pushing for the same standards as I demand of myself. So that was just such a relief and such a joy to to experience and, and uh, pleasure over the two seasons I was here. Um, uh, and then we had great coaches, obviously Joe Smith. Uh, I have great admiration for him and he was a, an extraordinary coach and he set up great environment and uh, we had a guy called John O'Gibbs who was an ex-New Zealand um, an all-black second row slash back row and I, he was somebody I really admired and got on very well with and he he enjoyed the way I played but um, so yeah that was definitely the environment ironically the Celtic League or the Pro 12 as it was called then which is now the um, URC is the league that suited me least suited my style of play like so I was a big heavy second row so that the slower leagues the more pressurized leagues in terms of like promotion relegation or success and relegation like the top 14 and the premiership and they're they're more um, combative and they're more confronting in their style of play more of the game is played around the ruck so that suited me way more. I, I would much rather you run straight at me than you try and try and run around me, you know. Mm. Whereas the the URC at the top, the Pro Twelve at that point, and particularly the way Leinster played was, um, it wasn't ideal for my um, strengths. Um, but what they really needed was a big, heavy second row, you know. So they needed it for the scrum, they needed it for their mall defense. So I fitted into that hole that they had in their um, in their squad. But I really didn't fit their style of play, and I didn't fit the style of play of um, of the URC. So I, I probably preferred the other leagues. Like I love the Premiership is a tough league. Like it's the Premiership is the league where there's no easy game. Home and away, you know, twenty six games a year or twenty. I think it was twenty four games a year at that point. Um, every game is hard. Every game is attritional. Every game is um, physical. The French league is the league you'll get the hardest match you'll ever play because they're so emotional. So you'll play a team someday that are extraordinarily up for the game. Like we played a couple of home games when I was at Breve against Toulouse. And um, they are obviously a great team, but sometimes they don't turn up because they're so flaky emotionally. Uh, and But the day they do turn up, they fly into things like nobody else, you know. So you'll have the toughest game you'll ever have in the f top 14. You'll also have the easiest game. You know, eight minutes into a game, you will know that the opposition haven't got off the bus. Like, they don't want to be there. Like, mm. there's many home games I can remember playing against, like, Stade Francais, Perpignan, um, Bayonne, where they, they, they just they have no interest. They're like, mm. they, 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 they've come to, they haven't come to lose, but they almost know they're going to lose and they don't get off the bus. And, and that just comes down to that emotional, the lack of, well, firstly, it comes down, it comes down to many things. It comes down to the culture, it comes down to the coaching, it comes down to, um, uh, how they've prepared that week emotionally. And a lot of the uh, French coaching is very old school. So the coaches use a lot of emotional blackmail against the players. The amount of times we'd be preparing for a game and we'd be doing a scrum session, I have this old school coach 
and he'd be like, uh, Perpignan, they're the best scrum in the league. If we're not on top of it, they're going to fuck us up, right? Next week, right? Claremont, they're the best scrum in the league. If we don't prepare properly, they're going to fuck us up. Three weeks later, you know, uh, Toulon, they're the best. You said this three weeks in a row, like they're not the best, yeah. scrum, you know, and not everyone. So it's just they treat you like children, like so they don't prepare particularly well. Um, uh, they don't they, they don't hit the right notes during the week to prepare the players. So you can just sometimes teams don't get off buses and particularly for away games. So so yeah. So that yeah, so those are the two leagues that I probably enjoyed the most rather than the top fourteen, but the environment I enjoyed most was undoubtedly playing here in Dublin with Leinster. Yeah. And then that whole transition from professional sport to life after, that can be a real challenge for, for some athletes. So talk to us about that for how you approached it. I I had this awareness for a number of years that and this was it 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 the the awareness was that uh, I'm I'm not just a rugby player. Um I didn't I I I'd learned to detach my identity from being a rugby player. Um and I I, I couldn't say that throughout my um, career of course like the early days you know I would have more attached my identity you know it was a it was a shield from the the continued questioning like you know of uh, what are you going to do with your life well I'm a rugby player like I'm a professional rugby player right so um, uh, that's a that gives you a um, like I said a, a kind of a respect I suppose in terms of the question but like as years went by I realized of course you're so much more than that you're not that you're you're Damien like so so by the end of it you know because I'd lasted so long in it and it's such a um it's such a, a um, challenging environment to spend time in and to you really have to have certain values I, I felt I knew myself pretty well like and I felt I knew what was uh, important and meaningful to me and and that I felt I had found a path, which was that continually pushing myself physically and mentally in in um, in whatever you know um, whatever package called me. So as we know, some of those were like running in the Sahara Desert. They were extreme, right? They were um, they were memorable. They were achievements I wanted to do. Row across the Atlantic mountaineering so that's what i kind of for some <laughs> you make it sound like just went down to the shop ran across the sahara <laughs> so what the sahara is like 240 250k yeah so just give us an idea of 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 what that is what have you to bring with you how do you what's, so what's it called again the, the mountain de sable yeah it's um it's one of the original um ultra marathons so it's kind of going now for 35 six years and uh, it's a really well-run event, very slick event in the Moroccan Sahara Desert. Um, and it's, as you said, 250-odd kilometers. Changes the, the course changes every year, so you actually don't know what the route is until you get the, every day. You, the, the night before the next stage, you get a route map. So that's the first time you'll know what terrain you're going over that day. But the it's classically set up in terms of the first three stages are always kind of just below marathon distance and then the fourth stage is always 
double marathon and the fifth stage is always a marathon exact distance and then you're you, there's a sixth stage but it's it's very short so you know generally what you're going into we don't know the specifics of the terrain and the and the route and the distance and um it's self-supported so you have to carry everything you need for the whole duration from day one apart from water so they give you water at every checkpoint so you might you, you know you'd need you need your bedding so sleeping bag sleeping mat um pillow air pillow you'll need your cooking utensils and your food so you bring um freeze-dried fruit food and you just a little set up where you you create a burner to boil water and you add it to the freeze-dried food so you you have all that you need your clothing for the six days you know um you need any sort of maintenance for your feet the big most vulnerable thing and the thing that stops most people is just the sand getting into your your trainers your runners and the sand like even the littlest bit of sand will just churn up your feet and create huge blisters and you know they they are uh, very mentally debilitating to you know so um so any sort of feet care um you got to look after them and then they give you there's some things you have to bring they're not like not often used but things like scorpion bike kits that sort of stuff they're also um part of the uh the um, things you're told to that you have to have you know so they'll go through a checklist they'll go through your bag and and all that so um what kind of temperatures are you running in? Uh, i think our year the highest was like 46 45 46 degrees it's in april so it's kind of not at the height of um summer but for good reason right but it's still um and and, and that wouldn't have been a a particularly extreme year um i've i've heard stories of it getting to over 50 you know for for it so um yeah you just got to make sure you've well firstly have some conditioning to the to the sun and then secondly um, keep your um, skin as covered as possible um because clearly that was a a big um a big uh problem if you don't mm. And then I suppose the, I mean, you, you touched on rowing the Atlantic. So I think that's the first time that you, you came onto my radar. <coughs> I was saying to you, I woke up one morning and I got a, a Facebook alert and I just saw this madman <laughs> in the middle of despair after losing your spoon or something like that. Uh, oh, yeah. Halfway yeah. across the Atlantic. <laughs> and I just thought, what is going on? But actually what was really compelling about it was the the conversations and the confronting challenges and emotions and mm. uh, and so on so maybe can you set the context a little bit with that 2022 new york leaving new york and and heading mm. towards galway so i had uh, this was my second ocean rowing uh, expedition so i had some experience with um i'd spent 63 days on the southern route which was from the the other direction from east to west uh, new uh, from the canary islands to the caribbean um and it was a, an amazing experience and it was everything i wanted in in terms of that and the challenge and the memories but something had come on my radar at the very end of that was i knew i'd do another ocean row at that point so the the thing was like it always has to be um I'm not interested in going over old ground. I'm not interested in, you know, uh, repeating 
the challenge of an experience that I, I know I can achieve. I want to push myself, right? So I'm looking for something that's more challenging. So this uh, west to east, uh, New York to Galway route um, came on my radar. And it kind of came on my radar because I knew somebody else who had kind of planned to do it, but they, they had to pull out because of injury. And it came on my radar because when I got to Antigua, which was the little island in the Caribbean that I landed on in my first ocean row, there had been a boat of uh, four Antiguan men who had arrived about a month before me. And they were still a reverberation throughout the country um, about what they had done. Like everyone was still talking about them, you know, because um, I had, I suppose I had shared my um, journey and some people had picked up on it in Antigua so they they knew who I was and they'd come talking to me in the supermarkets and on the street and then they'd say and what about the four lads you know and they'd name them off Eli and um, the lads and I'd be like I just thought this was an amazing thing that that they had had such an effect on the um, general population just by rowing the ocean so then I started thinking about geez I could actually row into Galway like and you know I started to create some meaning behind not only challenging myself which is first and foremost like and, and what I'm going to get from the experience which is first and foremost um, the the foundation of a meaningful um, endeavor but then what are other people going to um, going to get from it and I thought about like you know that what if I was a young fella standing on the docks in Galway or on Nemo's Pier and seeing somebody having rowed into the Atlantic in this tiny little boat like actually seeing the 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 that image you know of this somebody who's like weather beaten but like kind of has as as faced extraordinary challenges but persevered I was like what would that give me as a 17 year old like if I saw that so I, I started to build a lot of meaning out into the vision of um of what this was and, and why it would be important for me to try and do it um and that just I kept adding on kind of little bits to it you know okay so we're leaving from New York so the very first ocean row was um, um left from New York uh, 125 years ago so there's a bit of historical connection there's the connection between Ireland and New York and the coffin ships and the people going to Ellis Island and we'll be passing by that so you know I it started to kind of fill out the picture and the vision I had so I was very um as that happened you know it was it got it got more meaningful to me and uh, my energy reserves I suppose increased in terms of making this thing happen and so it's and what makes that route so difficult is and the reason why the it's been attempted like 90 times and only 40 percent of the um, boats have successfully crossed to Europe um, um, the reason why those stats are so low is because the weather systems on the North Atlantic are um, highly um, adversarial to rowing a boat uh, meaning that like so my first ocean row went from as I mentioned the Canary Islands to Antigua you go across a trade winds route so basically you know there's a this band of wind that is consistently blowing that uh, east to west direction now it might blow you north northeast or north northwest or south south uh, west but at least you're going west so if I'm not rowing that boat is probably going west probably going where I want it to go in some capacity right on the North Atlantic, there's no trade winds. There's all these little microclimates. So 
you know, you can wake up at uh, 6 a.m. and the wind is going north and by 12 p.m. it's going west and by the end of the day it's going south, you know. It's it's really inconsistent, meaning that, you know, when I don't, when I'm not rowing, um, the chances of the boat going where I wanted to go are very, very slim. In fact, they'll probably go where I don't want it to go backwards. As, as it turned out, I went backwards a lot. You know, the... Um, it's a 3,000 mile um, ocean row and we calculated that I rode roughly around 3,700 miles because um, I, I went backwards about 400 nautical miles over the course of the, um, the, the expedition, 112 days. Um, so that's, you know, dealing with uh, going backwards for... Um, periods of say two or three days is very hard mm. when you're going backwards every time you stop rowing for 60 days it's absolutely soul destroying like it's uh, you know we touched on um there's deep moments of despair and disillusionment and disparagement it just sucks the life out of you you can't build any momentum to continue you know to to um any positive momentum you can't leverage anything like there's no Oh, well, I, I got, um, you know, I had a good day um, today because I made like 50 or 60 miles. Like it's always fighting. You're fighting for inches. You're fighting for miles. And it's just very hard to stay neutral or stay positive um, because there's so much resistance in, in you um, achieving what you want to achieve. Mm. And the, the schedule when you're, I suppose, when you're into it, how many hours per day rowing and... And then time off, talk to us a little bit about the, the cabin conditions. So unusually, um, not unusually, but I actually started that uh, expedition with a friend of mine. It was meant to be a, a pairs endeavor. And um, it, it was a good friend. We knew each other for years. Um, and he was medically evacuated on day 12 from the um, expedition because of, um, he had he had his own amazing story. Um, where he was actually paralyzed from the belly button down in a workplace accident about five years before we started this. And uh, he was given a uh, prognosis to, at best, you have a 5% chance of recovering any sensation below your belly button. And he, you know, he had this amazing journey where he confounded all those prognoses and, and uh, regained sensation and regained mobility and regained, um, sorry, relearned to walk. Um, but uh, what we didn't see, I suppose, in the preparation was that the effects of an ocean row, what would that would have on somebody who's gone through this? Because um, I, I, I felt like this is a guy I can rely on. You know, I saw values within his behavior that I, you know, I, I knew I, we would need on the ocean. And he's a good friend and I wanted to do more stuff with friends in this, you know, create memories with friends of doing extraordinary things. So, um so that's why I asked him, but what we didn't see, I suppose, is is just the, the, the difficulty of an ocean road, the challenge of it, and the effects that would have on where he was coming from, his medical history. So it all ended up on day um, 12 or thir 12 that he, um, he, he was feeling really, he was feeling utterly exhausted, and he measured his O2 saturation levels, and they were um, 86 and they should be like 99 or 100 at sea level. Um, 
And then he said, listen, I, his exact words were, I don't mean to alarm you, but um, uh, my O2 sats are 86. And I was like, oh, that, you know, from doing quite a bit of mountaineering, I knew that, you know, that's not right. And that's that means big trouble. And then he said, like, when I had my surgery in the matter private or the matter spinal unit, um, uh, one of the indicators for blood clotting um, in my uh, lungs post spinal surgery is dropping all two sats so then Scary. i heard that yeah it's like he's gone this is it there's you can't there's too much risk to continue you know you'd be mad to continue so we had this whole medical evacuation so to that point to answer your question we had been rowing in 90 minute shifts on and off for 24 hours a day mm-hmm. non-stop because we were we were pushing we hoped to break the world record um together for a pairs crossing which was 55 days 13 hours um and then when he was medically evacuated it was it was basically down to well how much can i row a day sustainably um and and that looked at about 11 or 12 hours a day i found it very difficult there was some days i didn't how did you measure that or how did you because you had you had to make this decision unexpectedly on yeah. the flight. So how do you calculate that? Basically just off the history of doing the previous ocean row as a solo, I knew that 12 hours a day is it's hard work. It's really hard work. It's hard to stay on the oars for 12 hours a day and to, to my standards. So I kind of, and I, of course I was rowing 12 hours a day at that point with, with him, but he was doing the other 12 hours. So that's kind of, I just fell on, like it was kind of the clear uh, marker that I would give myself. Now it, it was tough, like it, 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 it is... I, I read about some people who say they row 14, 15 hours. I don't know how they do it because um, I really, it's a real battle to stay on for 12 hours. Just to, to do that to your standards for 12 mm. hours is is very draining, you know. Um, but that's what I set myself. Uh, and then the rest of the day is just made up about resting. And there's all sorts of maintenance that needs to be kept on top of on the boat. Um, how do you manage your productivity in terms of your kind of capability because obviously you can't <coughs> row 11 hours a day flat out how, how, how do you manage your energy reserves do you, do you have to break it down or? yeah so try to make the most of the daylight so that would mean the the, the kind of routine i fell into was a 3 a.m uh, alarm call and then 45 minutes to an hour to be on the oars so on the oars for four would mean I would have probably an hour roughly of darkness of rowing to get into the day and then um, just try and make the most of the day after that. So I break it down into like either 90 minute blocks or two hour blocks um, uh, and then uh, an hour off here and there. And I tried to fit that 12 hours into before it got dark. And that would mean two things. Um, I would get a, a block of sleep at night that was regenerative and restorative like so maybe get four to five hours of sleep instead of like trying to row through the night because rowing through the night was it's just it's just hell like there's there's speaking of productivity it's it's incredibly inefficient because um it's you need to be able to see what the ocean is doing so where you place your oars and on this route, there's a lot of cloud cover. So firstly, there's the periods when there's no moon. So it's like pitch black. And secondly, there's a lot of cloud cover. So even when there is moon, you're not getting much moonlight. So you can't see what the ocean is doing, particularly like I wouldn't be able to see much further than past you, you know, mm-hmm. and I need to read those waves so I can place the oars in a certain mm-hmm. um, 
position to get the grade the best stroke I can because that's going to compound and add up and it's going to get me there faster so what happens is you know you miss time 19 out of 20 or strokes when it's dark and that means that you know you get some sort of ricochet like the oar will end up in your quad or sometimes in your shin or the worst one was the 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 end of the oar into the ribs like and um, <laughs> when your bed is just there like it's literally looking at you you know out the cabin so it, it, you know when things going like that and you're like this is a waste of fucking time so i tried to get four or five hours sleep at night and then just make the most of the daylight and and, and just stay disciplined around that mm. talk to us about the accommodation so for <laughs> anyone that anyone that hasn't seen it what are the dimensions of the 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 boat is uh, 6.2 meters in length and then on either end um, it's got two cabins and a little cockpit in the middle and um, one of those cabins is quite like a, a it's it's much more bulbous than the other so that's your living that's where you live that's where you sleep and that's where all your electrics are that's where your water maker is that's where your gps is that's where your radar is that's where your vhf radio that's where you store everything the other one is just for storage and, and you could you could squeeze in there if if absolutely necessary like in some sort of emergency but it would be ridiculously uncomfortable so so um so uh, and then all the storage of um, things like food and um, general ballast, water ballast, is underneath the deck. So all the deck is compartmentalized into these little hatches that you mm. fill up with food and, and things you're going to need daily. Um, and it's, um, yeah, and then there's just a vinyl kind of uh, bedding in that main cabin. Um, but it's, um, to say it's uh, uncomfortable is a... Um, <laughs> exaggeration um it's uh so like some examples are like that's when you come off the oars um say when we were both rowing and i had like 90 minutes to get my skin dry and get some sleep and then get ready to row again in in 90 minutes time so you get about at best about 70 minutes of try to get to sleep it's summer in north america so we left in june so it's hot right until you get like well up into the and later in the year and you well up in the latitudes so i could be trying to sleep if it's 30 degrees outside in that fiberglass um, um cabin it could be 42 43 degrees mm. and there's um you can't have any airflow through there because um are you, you get water in there like if you have a hatch open or something um the water has you know the water will fry the electrics basically and if you fry your gps or your radio like that's it expedition over right so you have to have the hatches closed unless it's a really calm day so um there's only a, a finite amount of air in there so you'll wake up in a panic like <gasps> searching for air and you'll have to break the hatch of the cabin open so it's like a sauna with with no airflow basically <laughs> through it and you have to try and sleep and rest that's one of the things that kind of caught up with Gussie because he couldn't, mm. he could not really get to sleep. It's very claustrophobic, yeah. Oh, it's not a nice sensation at all. Like you'd literally wake up in a panic searching for some air and then you have to get up and crack that cabin and, um, and, and let some air in and then try and go back to sleep. And he couldn't get any sleep. So he wasn't getting any rest um, while we were rowing you know 24 hours a day and kind of one of the things that caught up with him in the end but yeah it's it's a it's an uncomfortable uncomfortable existence 
and and there's times where both of us have to be in there and we're both big men uh he was a prop in rugby so you know he's not small i'm not small and um we have to go on a power anchor when we when the winds are too much to row into them you know when we're only making 0.2 or 0.3 or 0.4 of a mile in an hour you know there's just no point in continuing to row and it's highly frustrating and demoralizing so what you do is you use that opportunity to rest up and you put out a thing called a power anchor which is a big parachute that sits under the water and it holds about two tons of water in it and it stops you getting blown back mm. um in those conditions now it doesn't it's not perfect you'll still go back a little bit but much less that means both of us are in the cabin and we're stuck like you're literally stuck to each other like and you're both sweating and there's no air and yeah You'd probably run out of small talk as well oh yeah i know and the stink like and we're top to toe right so his feet are in my <laughs> his feet are in my face my feet are in his face so yeah get a picture of yeah yeah and Talk to us about some of the setbacks because you had some equipment malfunctions on the way as well that you had to deal with. Yeah, so on, on day 24, I had a big tropical storm rolling through, which is like what they call a hurricane in North America. Or so what we call a hurricane, they call it a tropical storm. I had uh, three cap sizes in the first five hours um, on power anchor. So that's firstly, that's not meant to happen. Um, you know, power anchor should be keeping me stable and um, aligned with the wind and the waves so that was very destabilizing mentally um, but i lost on the first capsize the night before when i you know you, i know these i knew this was coming because i have a weather router who tells me a daily weather forecast uh, for the next five days so for a few days we knew this was coming so it gets to a point where you know you, you lock down the boat and you tie everything down and as i was doing that the night before the tropical storm hit me um i had this um so it's called a jet boil which is it boils water so the desalinator makes the water and then you have to boil it to add it to your food and it's on a gimbal on the boat because it's actually the most dangerous piece of equipment because you know, imagine on a, a pitching and tossing little ocean rowing boat um boiling water like so what did to do that to mitigate the thread of that i suppose they put it on this gimbal so it actually flows with the boat so it's really cool but the gimbal is quite awkward and i was getting and there's no room for anything on the deck you know so i was getting in and out and i kept kind of snagging my shin in the footwell inside the cabin on this gimbal and i was like fuck i'm just gonna leave that outside now and i forgot i left it outside uh when the storm came and then i capsized and that was gone and that was my second the first jet boil had malfunctioned by day 24 so that was the second one gone so that meant that i just had to um i had to eat uh cold dehydrated rations for the next what turned out to be 88 days mm. uh, and I, when you tuned in uh, or when you you know with the spoon thing mm. i lost my last piece of um uten eating utensils so like we would have started with four or five sporks they call them it's half a fork half a spoon and that day i had this huge wave had swamped the cabin or sorry the, the deck the cockpit area and um I'd left the spoon down beside me uh, and other things around the deck. It's quite normal to do that while you're rowing. But um, what was unusual was because the weight of the water on the that had fl that flooded the deck, it, it runs off through these things, these little flaps called scuppers runs out and back into the ocean, you know, um, and the, the, the amount of volume of water was so heavy that it obviously it just picked up the spoon as it, and it just went out through the scupper with the spoon. 
So that meant that I had to, for the last kind of 18 to 20 days, I had to over liquidize my food. So I had to make it drinkable. That was the only way I could consume it, right? Because I had no spoon. It was either that or my hands. So I, I had to drink food. So I had to drink cold, dehydrated rations. So for, what, like what, what, what were the... What were, like and to make co- it worse cold again. chicken curry or what, what, what kind of stuff? Was yeah, that? like so. And then t- to add to that story was... We had a nutrition partner called Radex. They're an amazing company, New Zealand company, and they're like world leading in what they do. But about a week, no, it was about two or three weeks before we we signed up as partners with them. And they said to us, oh, by the way, version eight, everything you're going to bring on the ocean, we're gone vegan. <laughs> now, I'm not a vegan, right? As you can probably tell, and far, I'm far from a vegan. Uh, so, um, but we couldn't afford to um, not uh, have that partnership because it would have meant another eight to 10,000 of expenditure on food. So we had to go, okay, great, yeah. So this was, these were cold, dehydrated, vegan rations. So things like uh, falafel, um, what else? I've, I've actually pushed them out to the bottom. <laughs> I pushed them out of my long-term memory, clearly, <laughs> from uh, for, for obvious uh, reasons. But uh, what else had we, like... Um, Oh, like the chick, uh, like um, dal, some sort of dal curry. Like it, mm. yeah, it was, it was yeah, highly. Uh, it was grim. It was grim. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you, I suppose, when you think about those times and the the com- the confronting, or I, th- I think the thing that kind of resonated with me was the fact that you were doing this. You were dealing with, you know, this despair and this challenge, and and looking it head on. But then at the same time through i guess a satellite phone you're you're uploading this and sharing this on on social media Mm. was that cathartic or was that was that because being alone out there but still being connected to people yeah were you conscious of that or what the the thinking the the part of it that was cathartic was the the venting you know it was Mm. it was a um you're in your own head for day after day through a through a difficulty right through a struggle through something you're trying to achieve at the same time. So there, there, it, it's not as if it's, you know, um, it's not all negative. You're working towards something important, but it's very difficult. And, um, you know, you got to deal with the uh, internal narrative. And, and that can, when you're living in states of frustration and agitation on a, a default level, just trying to move this boat forward, never mind going into, you know, the dispiritment and the disillusionment of it all and down into the, the despair, um, Sometimes you need to get that stuff out to some extent, you know, because it'll just build up like a, it'll just fester and and um, bubble and bubble and it's going to explode at some point, right? So that's what I found is really um, helpful in terms of the sharing of the um, experience is just grabbing the phone and like in terms of the so I did a podcast as I went and just talking into the phone and, and releasing some of that um, the the story and the narrative and the, 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 the what's going on inside me every day so that that was really helpful but the the actual act of sharing it is the is the this the process of sharing it is, is actually quite difficult well it's it adds a, a another um uh challenge to the the challenge like because you gotta you gotta bring a, a broadband satellite uplink so it's this little unit it's about you know whatever um 50 centimeters by 50 centimeters and it's um uh our um 
uh, it's heavy and you got to stand outside and it has to be in alignment with a satellite and you got to hold it on the satellite. So you're kind of, and you know that by its beeping, it beeps, beep, 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 beep. And then you, you log into the satellite and you uh, attach your phone to it and you send it. But like you send it through the, you know, the whole, through WhatsApp actually via the broad breathe the satellite. But a, a one minute or a two minute video can take like 30 to and sometimes an hour to send you know and you have to you have to keep that thing aligned with the satellite and it, it breaks connection and you have to start again and you know every cell inside me just wants to sleep really and i, I you know but there's something right compelling or um, driving me to to share um the journey and i think it's 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 an opportunity i think what that is or i know what that is is the opportunity to um for for somebody else watching to take something positive from what i'm doing you know to have a positive effect on somebody you just you know and that's the power at least that's the opportunity with social media is that we can do that now that you can you can get into somebody's pocket um and into their lives and you can affect them positively through what you're doing what you love and how you're living your life and um and, and that's the driver for that chair that's the driver that keeps you up at one o'clock in the morning on the outing deck getting soaked by waves hanging on with one hand you know and and the whatsapp thing dropping out and you're for fuck's sake you just want to mm. get it sent and and then get to some get to sleep but it's uh, it's an important part of it for me you know i just i just feel it's a an amazing opportunity to to share a way of living and doing and being um that is very um uh, not a it's like a it's like a I, it's like a mirror of life a mirror on the experience of life like an ocean row is like a um it's like a lifetime of challenges and a, a lifetime of emotional challenges condensed into what however long it takes you and if i can share how i'm overcoming those or at least dealing with them um maybe somebody can take that and you know use it in their life and, and mm. i think that's a great thing to do while you yeah. while you're living your life to the best of your ability and what did you learn about yourself from all that time confronting challenge and being alone and dealing with despair <laughs> the, the 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 thing that was really clear to me and i i don't think it was ever so clear as when i finished this one and i think it's because how i finished that i i realized that it's it's not about what you do like so it's not about the achievement but it's about how you do it like so i realized I, I got real clarity on like what what this gave me deeply was a, uh, a clarity on that i i got a i got a deep i got a fulfillment and a um a peace from an internal peace from doing it sticking to my like living to my standards while under the enormous challenges and stress of uh, battling the ocean battling something that generally i was powerless against but i was i wasn't power i wasn't powerless in controlling my what was within my control and then so it was, it was living to those standards when nobody nobody's around to see if you don't only you right so it was that and then secondly it was about embodying values that were are clearly uh, meaningful and important to me so it was about living courageously it was about 
working hard. It was about being disciplined while under those stresses and strains and the setbacks and the resistance. It was about persevering through that. So it was about having uh, an integrity in how I um, lived and acted every day when nobody is there to see if if you are right nobody's there nobody's nobody's seeing if i get up at five past three in the morning rather than the 3 a.m nobody's seeing if i just go oh no no give me another 10 minutes today but i'm seeing that and 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 seeing myself have that discipline and have that um that um that determination to to just do the work every day and, and 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 fight through the resistance I was getting and, and to embody those values that are important to me. So when I got to the end, you know, the, the achievement really didn't, it's not that it's not important, it is, but it's not truly important. What's really important is that I, I live to those values um, and I live to my standards when and then nobody else was was there to look or judge but I was there and I did it time and time again uh, and and that's the thing that I got real clarity on it's amazing and then when you came back I suppose the whole thing of bringing this to life <coughs> talking to people about it and speaking like yeah. you've just done the, the tour you're in the middle of doing the tour at the moment of Ireland um what about developing those skills? Is that something that you had done some of before? Yeah, like a little bit, you know, it's a um, it's a common enough offshoot of, you know, the, the adventurer's life, you know, the, to try and, um, I suppose, share or continue to share, at least in my um, perspective, continue to share the journey and um, and and continue try to relay the things that give you so much like so the the mindsets and the the mental processes and the uh, mental resilience strategies to overcome these things because it just comes back to that you know and and it comes at its very essence i'm doing these things to build myself up to be able to approach daily life better like my understanding is and my belief is that it makes you more human you know it, 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 you have to you know when you spend so much time in these moments of struggle and, and difficulty and, and challenge that you know you it upgrades your consciousness you become more aware you get better perspectives you get more of an understanding of the the deep realities of life because you can touch on them right true true discomfort and true pain so it gives you so much that way so it's it's an extension um of trying to share that to people so if it gives me that in life and it's 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 harmonized my internal world by true difficulty and struggle well if i can share that you never know it might it might translate over to um somebody else so so that's one component is the um the talking about it but we're, I'm, i've also set up a um a, a service where um i'm uh I'm putting people through extreme physical and mental challenges like time frame kind of capped of 12 hours or 24 hours and I've I've created my own model of like paradigm shifting experiences to um to give people that experience so I put them through this like I call it a crucible experience so it's like you know a crucible is like a forge so it's like a forging experience and then I teach them or we teach them 
the um the or psychological organization to get through those moments of difficulty and challenge and doubt um because once again it's so translatable to mm. everyday life um a way i put that to people is you know if you imagine your life as a uh, like a, a pie chart and like you have this little sliver of the pie chart of like three percent is on expeditions the other 97 percent benefits so much from that what that three percent is so it's trying to I've, you know i've i've worked for 25 years to figure out um the all the kind of emotional and psychological side of what i do and the physical side and i've put it all together and so it's trying to relay again and and share and and, um and give back all of that learning um but in a really impactful way by putting people through the experience and then to coaching them through it you know guiding them through it so because because all it is is how you organize your psychology in those Mm. moments of stress you know when the stress response hit that's just being ready um to deal with that um and been having the self-awareness to recognize it and then having the ability to redirect your mind using certain tools like concentration um and how you can change your um how you experience that experience just by how you think Mm. and like you can imagine then the transfer into everyday life yeah definitely and i think that's the thing that really came across with all of the content that you shared while on that row was that how you considered it and i think you thought about things deeply and you communicated it in a very genuine very authentic way and i think people have really connected with that uh, and it's fascinating and we're dying to see what what comes next and um, thank you so much for coming in and doing this feels like a therapy session <laughs> but um we will we will share your your details so people can follow you and connect with your your travels and your work and uh, yeah thank you so much thanks for having me it's great cheers appreciate cheers. it it was great hearing from damien you can find out more about him on instagram you can follow him at owled underscore stock and if you enjoyed the podcast please Follow us on Instagram or subscribe to our YouTube channel at Talent Matters underscore podcast.